It's important that we have a friend, isn't it? Especially when you look around and all you seemingly see is foes. People at war with you and at war with one another. Seeking your harm and to tear you down to build themselves up. The world can be rather harsh and cold. Seemingly overbearing. What can we as God's people do amid such trying times? The psalm we'll study this morning provides an answer. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 94. Psalm chapter 94. We've been working our way through over the last few weeks of book four in the Psalms. And this morning, as we've been sequentially working through, we land on Psalm chapter 94. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, I have no idea what the page number is. But uh, the Psalms is like right in the middle of the Bible. So... Uh, Just turn and you'll find it sooner or later. And if you are visiting and uh, you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We want nothing more than for you to have your own copy of God's Word. Psalm chapter 94. I'll read all 23 verses. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evil doers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the the Lord, he knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been by my help, been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. 
but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and he will wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Here's what I think is the main point of Psalm chapter 94. In this world, you may experience oppression and injustice. But take comfort in knowing that God will avenge you and repay all your enemies. In this world, you may experience oppression and injustice. But take heart in knowing that God will avenge you and repay all your enemies. This psalm gives us guidance on what to do when injustice is present, when enemies are attacking. What should you do in those times? Three things. Number one, plead. We see that in verses one through seven. Number two, bear witness. We see that in verses 8 through 11. And number three, take comfort. We see that in verses 12 through 23. What should you do when injustice is present? Number one, plead. Number two, bear witness. And number three, take comfort. Number one, plead. Plead. Cry out to God. We see that here in verse 1. The psalmist cries out, O Lord. It's the way that the psalm that, that Pastor Brian, who was with us last week, when he preached, it's, it's the way that psalm started out. In Psalm 131, verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. It's the way the, the psalmist spoke in the psalm we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Now look there at, at Psalm chapter 93. In verse 3, the floods have lifted up. Oh, Lord, the Psalms are doing something. Yes, these Psalms were songs that Israel sang back then. The songs that they sang together in worship. And yes, we might think that the Psalms are for us now. They soothe us. They comfort us. They do that. But you know, the, another thing that the Psalms are doing as holy scriptures is that the Psalms are instructing us teaching us, and not just through imperative-laden instructions, but by example after example after example of the psalmist doing just this, calling out to God in every circumstance. When there's something praiseworthy, they call out to God. When there's something pain-inducing, they call out to God. They consider it a privilege to carry everything to the Lord in prayer. They serve as a sort of precursor to Paul's later command to pray always in every situation. There's a reflex that we need to cultivate that when things happen, and they will, our first response is to flee to the Lord, to cry out, oh Lord. And notice how this call out to God is informed by content about God. 
The psalmist calls out to the Lord because of what he knows about him, that he's a God of vengeance. And so sure is he that that's part of God's character, that he's a vengeful God, that he cries out twice. Oh, God of vengeance. Oh, God of vengeance. And he calls on this God of vengeance to demonstrate himself as vengeful. Shine forth, God of vengeance. We, we want to see you reveal yourself, your anger at and punishment of wrong. Verse 2, rise up. Show yourself to be who you are. The judge. And not simply of a particular district or town or jurisdiction, but the judge of the entire earth. And what do we expect of judges? What uh, character quality do we require? That they be just. That they administer justice. It's the same here. This plea is for God to show justice and to pay back the proud, the evil that are oppressing God's people. Give them what they deserve. Now, maybe you're here and you're already turned off. This is not how you like to think about God. It's not the way you heard about him in, in Sunday school growing up. It's not the way preachers often talk about God. It's not the way people describe him in popular conversation. And it is not what you want to hear today in a service that you thought was supposed to make you feel good and uplift you. But friends, while it might not be what you like or what you want, it's what we all need. An accurate view about God, which we find in his word. I mean, God himself says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Our sister Dominique read that for us earlier in Romans chapter 12. And it's what we see throughout all the scriptures. A vengeful God. Not a capricious God who just erratically acts out of anger and pounces on people all right, without any cause. But a God who gives just retribution for people's sins. Remember the, the judgment God laid down on Adam and Eve and, and Satan. It was in response to their sin of rebelling against him in Genesis chapter 3. The blood he brought upon the whole world, wiping everyone except Noah and his family out, was in response to the whole world raging against his God. The destruction he brought to Sodom and Gomorrah. Raining down fire and sulfur on them was in response to their iniquity. Sinners don't get off the hook with God. He pays people back for the wrong that they've done. That's not him being petty. That's him being God. A good and a just God who, like any good and just judge, must repay evil. I mean, isn't that what you really want? What you long for? True justice? Someone who will punish the bad guys? I mean, isn't that why we love superheroes? Why we love the Avengers? This fictitious group of superheroes who, who team up to fight this kind of evil and threatening enemy? So why is it that we hate the idea of God as the ultimate Avenger? I think it shows how sinfully warped and inconsistent can be in our thinking. 
But we learn here to rightly value God for who he is and what only he can do. This plea for God to help, to rise up and repay the wicked for their wrongs is motivated by who the psalmist knows God to be, a just judge and a God of vengeance. And because this is who God is, the psalmist implies that it's not who he is. It's not his or our jobs to seek vengeance. We are not to avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of the Lord. This passage calls on us not to engage in personal vendettas, but in personal prayer. And it's not the elegant, formal, flowery prayers that we've been trained to believe that uh, those are the only ones that God hears. You know the ones. Filled with impressive vocabulary, oratorical flair, every possible proper title that can be attributed to God. No, the psalmist here prays not to give a performance, but because he's got problems. And he doesn't try to clean up or edit his address to God. He just lays it out before him. He tells him what he wants. Rise up, O Lord, and repay your enemies. He tells him how he feels. Like the persecution from enemies will last forever. Verse 3, how long, O Lord, shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? And he tells him what he sees, all the evil that the wicked are doing. Verse 4, they pour out arrogant words and boast. Verse 5, they crush your people and afflict your heritage. Verse 6, they kill the widow and sojourner and murder the fatherless. Verse 7, and they say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. The psalmist laments. And by his lament, we learn that it's okay not to be okay with the way things are. To be dissatisfied with the status quo. The question is, how is that communicated? You know, often for us, it comes out in grumbling against God. I can't believe God don't let this happen. Oh, where is God in all this? But have you noticed how rarely we ever address such thoughts directly to God? Instead, we kind of talk around God. We share those thoughts with friends and complaining. Or we scribble those words in our journals, in our private devotions. Or we kind of just silently reflect on them in our hearts. But as one theologian noted, you can't talk about God behind his back. All of life is lived in his presence. Problem is that when we are met with circumstances in which we find ourselves suffering, on the bitter receiving end of some injustice or evil, we don't talk directly to God. It's not good to grumble against God in your agony, agony, but it is good to grieve to God in it, to cast our cares and complaints before God's throne, to lament. Why is it that we cast our complaints to everyone but God? Do we think that in them we'd find one more sympathetic than him? And he is the one who heard the cries of his people Israel in bondage and looked upon them in pity. 
Jesus is the one who saw people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and moved towards them in compassion. Why is it that we cast our complaints to everyone but God? Do we think that in them we find one more able to help than him? This is the God whose mighty right hand defeated the great kings Pharaoh and Og and Sihon, all their armies. This is the God who gave help to David against Goliath and Gideon against hundreds of thousands of Midianite soldiers. Will he not help us? Why is it that we cast our complaints to everyone but God? Do we think that in them we'd find one more concerned about justice than him? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, we read in the Bible. And so we must go to him above all. The psalmist here shows us how to do that. Crying out to God and casting before him all his concerns. And notice how he describes in specific detail the evil ways of both the wicked in in word and deed. They boast with their words in in verse 4. And their deeds... They crush God's people. Specifically, in verse 6, they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. The powerful use their power to prey on the weak and vulnerable of society. It's in direct opposition to God, who uses his power to care for and protect the weak and the vulnerable. Now listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Moses says, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes judgment and justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In stark contrast, these proud enemies in Psalm 94, 5, and 6 crush and kill them. That's just the essence of sin. Doing the opposite of what God demands and desires. And on the flip side, the essence of godliness is doing what God demands and desires. Caring for the weak and the vulnerable and concerned about justice going forward. And it's interesting. The psalmist here doesn't seem to be personally or directly affected by these evil actions. I mean, he's not a widow, a sojourner, an orphan. And so conventional wisdom would say, just care about things concerning you. Or worry about your own problems. But godly wisdom says, care about the things that God cares about. The things that concern him. Look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. The question is not, do we care about our own problems? All of us always do that. But do we care about the plight that others face? The problems plaguing others? Or do you only care about some injustice or wrong that personally affects you and are suspicious when you hear about someone else struggling or in need? God cares about all injustice, and God's people ought to mimic God. 
as we look around in our day. We don't need to look far to find injustices. We see injustices against ethnic minorities. Racial profiling has, has been found to plague some of our country's police departments, where black and brown skin is enough to suspect criminality. People of Asian descent have been assaulted and attacked simply because they are of Asian descent and nothing more. Unborn children, defenseless and helpless, have been murdered by the millions in their mother's wombs, and especially in communities like ours, merely for the sake of comfort and expediency. Women and children have been sexually abused by people in power who abuse their power and use people for their personal pleasure. And Christians throughout the world are being persecuted daily imprisoned and put to death because of their belief in and testimony about Jesus Christ. Now, these are not merely political or politicized issues. These are not merely social issues. These are people created in the image of God and God cares issues. And so these are we must care issues. We must care about the equitable treatment of all people based on God's standards of personhood and righteousness. Now, we might not all agree on how best to fully address every injustice. Some of us may advocate for certain policies or actions, others different programs or platforms. But we should all grieve when we see injustices and all chiefly go to God about them. Plead with him the just judge of all to step in and to right wrongs, to avenge the evil done against his people. What should you do when injustice is present? Plead, plead. The second action we see that this Psalm calls us to do in the face of injustice is to bear witness. Point number two, bear witness. And, and notice here who who we're to bear witness to, the people causing the problems. In verse 8, the psalmist directly addresses the proud oppressors. In verse 8, he recounted what they say, that the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. You know, that's really the, the worldview that's prevalent in much of life, isn't it? It's the, the worldview behind not just injustice, but every form of sin. The idea that God might be real, but he's not really paying attention, not really active and alert in the world. And this is more our domain to do what we want. God's domain is in heaven somewhere. Is that how you live? I mean, would you watch what you watch if you knew that God was in the room? Would you text what you text if you know that God was looking over your shoulder and staring at your screen? Would you visit the sites you visit if you knew God was searching your search history? The answer is no. We know that because we don't even do those things when another human is in the room, let alone God. But this lie that lingers in our hearts and often gets expressed in our sinful actions is that somehow we can do what we want apart from the watching eye of God. The oppressors in verse 7 boasted 
that they could carry out their vicious oppression of others with immunity, seemingly getting away with their evil. But the psalmist bears witness to them of the truth in verse 8. First, he bears witness about who they are. Fools. They might think themselves wise to, to be able to gain for themselves off the back of others, of the weak. No one else can see or say anything to them. But the psalmist says they need to wise up in verse 8. Where in verse 7, they say that the God of Jacob does not perceive or understand. The psalmist in verse 8 calls them the dull ones and tells them that they are the ones who lack understanding about the one true God. And then in verses 9 through 11, the, the psalmist just kind of bears witness about this one true God to them. And, and notice here in these verses how he employs a bit of logic to show just how truly foolish their actions and their attitudes are. You think you can do what you want out of God's presence, out of his view or involvement? How is that possible? I mean, God planted the ear. And he put it there on your body. Can he himself then not hear? You say the Lord does not see. That's your mantra, right? The Lord don't see. But God formed the eye. Sight is his idea. And the eye, his created means to give it. Does he then not see? Psalm 139 says that he formed all our parts and he skillfully knitted them all together. Is the creator unable to do the things he created? Psalmist goes on in verse 10, God disciplines the nations. You've heard of and you've seen what he's done to other peoples. Do you think he won't rebuke you? Do you think the flood or the fire were only for them back then and not for you now? Do you really think that the Lord does not see and perceive everything? Verse 11, this Lord, the only Lord, he knows the very thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Or better translation, every thought of man is vain and foolish and futile. The psalmist puts these proud oppressors on notice that God notices everything. And if they were wise, they would turn away from their evil and turn to God and ask, plead him for forgiveness. What should you do when you see injustice? First, talk to God. Plead to him. But as you have opportunity, talk to those who are the perpetrators of injustice. Call out their sin and the vast trouble they find themselves in under the watchful eye of a vengeful God. Part of what it means for us to be Christians is to bear witness to people who are doing evil, are calling them to repent and to bear witness about God, showing them what he is like. Maybe you're here and in some form or fashion, you're perpetuating an injustice or a wrong. Maybe you're a parent or a boss or a teacher and you use your position of power to demean and humiliate those under you or to take advantage of them. Young people, you are about to start a new school year and there'll be many opportunities for both good and evil. How will you use your influence? For good or for evil? 
How are you going to treat the, the socially awkward kid? Or the student with a physical defect? Will you distance yourself from them? Cast them off as weirdos? Mock and prank and talk about them? They may not hear all you say. Or they may be too afraid to say anything back to you. But will you wise up to know that God hears everything? God knows the very thoughts of your heart. He hears what you say. He sees what you do. He knows all your thoughts, and he is not pleased. He will judge you. Repent. Turn away from your sins today and turn to God and the offer of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. Let the witness of the psalmist convict your hearts and awaken you from foolish living today. But this bearing witness is also a reminder for those of us who are grieved by injustice. Because while the wicked might proudly boast, the Lord does not see. As the righteous, sometimes we can give into it. We can act as if that's really a reality. The how longs, O Lord, seem to be too long. And you become resigned to thinking that perhaps God doesn't care about evil. Maybe he won't do anything about it. What do we need? To bear witness to ourselves and to other brothers and sisters in the church. Look, things might be bad. It might seem like your enemies are prospering and God doesn't care. But trust that God sees and God knows. Don't listen to them. Open your lips and lift up your voice about him. Bear witness. Third and lastly, take comfort. What should you do when injustice is present? Take comfort. Now, comfort might be the last thing you think to do in the midst of trying times. I mean, things aren't comfortable. But I think we see here that comfort is found not in favorable situations or circumstances, but in a faithful God. The psalmist directs his attention back to the Lord and expresses that even in the midst of sorrow, there's reason for God's people to be happy. He says in verses 12 and 13, blessed or happy is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. And while it's true that God's people are being persecuted, it's not because God has taken his hand off the wheel. It's not because he's lost control over them or left them. Rather, under the loving providence of God, what they're experiencing in enduring injustice and evil from people is ultimately discipline from the Lord. You know, that's a, a word, a concept that we need to, to recover and keep in our Christian vocabulary. Discipline. It helps us to better understand and verbalize the trials we will endure in life. So often when troubles come, we're tempted to think only in terms of God punishing us. We must have done something wrong to deserve this hardship. Or we think that God has forgotten us, doesn't really care about what we're going through. But the Bible presents this other category, 
That what God is doing with his people is disciplining us, shaping us and molding us, even through intense trials and persecutions, to depend more and more and more on him and less and less and less on ourselves. To grow closer and closer to him. That's the way he treated Israel as his covenant people. And that's the way he deals with us now as his new covenant people in Christ. In him, in Christ, there is no punishment for us. Yes, we all deserve to be punished, but Jesus Christ was punished for us. Yes, we do deserve to die, to be beaten, to be chastised for our sins, but God exhausted all that punishment on his son for you. He drank the cup of God's wrath for us. He died for our sins and rose from the grave so that we might no longer be children of wrath, but might become children of God through faith in him. And so as children of God, all the trials that we receive now are never an indication of God's hatred towards us, but only the means through which he passes his strange but pure love for us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 reminds the suffering Christians there that what they were enduring was the loving discipline of the Lord. Quoting Proverbs chapter 3, he, he tells them not to disregard, disregard the Lord's discipline, nor grow wearied by it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Going on further, he says that, that this is, that this is the, the God, this, this act of discipline is God treating you as, as, as sons. And it's good for you. For if you go without discipline, it would be terrible. It would be a sign that you are not children of God, but illegitimate children. The psalmist here seems to understand that. He finds comfort even in the hard trials of oppression. Because he views it not as God's rejection of his people, but as proof of his love for them. Expressed in his loving discipline of them. Through fiery trials, but instructing them in his word. And notice the psalmist says there that, that God is teaching them from his law. They didn't have external affirmations in the world uh, around them. They had nothing around them that they were seeing and experiencing that was telling them that God was with them, that God was caring for them. I mean, if they interpreted life through the events that they were enduring, they certainly would have concluded that God hates us. If they would have viewed life through the lens of the oppressors who ravaged them, they may have determined that God has left us. But they had a book that God gave them that told of his faithful and covenant-keeping love. That book was more authoritative than the accumulated witnesses of the world's injustices and the wicked's insults. And in the Lord's instruction, they could find rest from trouble, even in the midst of it. Even as turbulent as the storms caused by the people praying upon them, they could have peace, real peace, as they studied and meditated on the promises of God in his word. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. But while they endured the wicked's evil treatment and waited for the wicked's destruction, they rested in God's word and believed it. So that the psalmist can confidently assert in verse 14, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need not ignore nor minimize the evil we see, the injustices we experience. We can acknowledge the utter wretchedness of them all and the pain and destruction it causes. But we need not fear nor despair. We have not been left alone. As God asked Moses when he was fretting about the, how he'd fare and the hardship that he was set before him, God asked him, what's that in your hands? We have a book. That Bible that you're holding in your hands is not simply for Sunday worship. That Bible is from Sunday, for Sunday through Saturday worship, for warfare. That Bible is for our survival. So that when tempted to believe the lie that God despises you or is distant from you, that's why you're going through what you're going through. God don't love you. We can proclaim from God's word, no, that ain't it. He tells me that I'm his child. And that as his child, he's going to discipline me. And he promises me that as his child, he will not be a deadbeat dad. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Not a thing. Not a thing, ultimately. Which sends the psalmist into a kind of personal testimonial in verses 16 to 19. You know, if you've grown up in, in kind of small churches, maybe you, you know it used to be a little section where it wasn't really formal, but they just gave space for some of the older saints to get up, sing a song, and give a long testimony of what the Lord has done to them. That's kind of what the psalmist does here. He takes 16 and 19, like, let me tell you why I'm so confident in the Lord. I got his word, and he's been good to me, right? He, he testifies. He, he says in verse 16, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? Remember, this is the very thing he prayed for in verse 2. For the Lord to rise up. And as he reflects on his life, he's reminded and rejoices in the fact that time after time after time, God has already answered that prayer. So why am I tripping now? He done risen up so many times, I'd have forgotten more times than he's remembered, and yet here he is still. He says in verse 17, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have been down in the land of silence or in the land of the dead. I, I mean, the Lord has already helped. If it were not so, I would have perished. When I thought, he says, my foot slips, your steadfast covenant keeping love, it held me up. Isn't that your testimony if you're a Christian? You realize your total inability to help yourself, and looking back at your life, looking back at all the, the events and circumstances of your life, you realize God's total sufficiency, God's complete power, God's amazing grace to act on your behalf. I mean, think about the greatest enemies that, that God has rescued us from. 
not the things we see around us every day or the foes we meet face to face. But far greater enemies have risen up against us. The record of our own sins and the penalty of those sins, the great enemy of death. And we could ask with the psalmist, who rises up for me on my behalf against these wicked things? And we could answer with the psalmist, the Lord. Only our answer is far more filled out. For we have seen how the Lord has ultimately helped his people by coming to earth to conquer our evil enemies. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came in the flesh to save us to save us from the enemies of sin and death by becoming sin for us. He took our sins upon his, himself, on his body, in a, on a tree, and he died on our behalf. But he rose up victorious over sin and death so that all who turn from sin and trust in him are no longer in bondage. Our souls no longer destined for the land of silence, for hell, but our souls are destined for the land of the living, in the eternal presence of God our Savior. If the Lord would care so much to save us from our greatest enemies, will he not hold us up now against real but far lesser, far weaker enemies? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. So that even as, as life clamps down, what feels like a deadly bite, the Lord is our antidote. Though the cares of our hearts might be many, as the psalmist says in verse 19, God's consolations of what he has done for us in the past and where he is leading us in the future, they cheer our souls in the present. Even as problems in the form of persecutors exist because we know that they won't always a day is coming when God, the just judge, will shine forth and will perfectly avenge his people and repay our enemies. That day is coming, but is not yet here. In the meantime, the wicked continue to act wickedly. The psalmist is clear-minded about that. And so should we be. Injustice persists in many forms. I mean, look there at, at verse 20. We see that injustice is wrapped up in systems and laws. Wickedness finds itself in the, the upper echelons of society, in rulers who have authority. And those rulers frame or structure injustice in statutes or laws to oppress people. Friends, systemic injustice is not something that proponents of CRT have suddenly discovered. We shouldn't be surprised or shocked when people see it and identify it. Neither do we need to, to, to spend all our capital to, to be dismissive of the entire concept. We see it in the Bible. The powerful wickedly using their power and power structures to oppress the weak. Banding together, verse 21 says, against the life of the righteous, condemning the innocent to death. That is not new. I mean, the very trial and murder of Jesus Christ was a case study in systemic injustice. The chief priests and the elders banded together. They set up a mock trial and put the innocent Jesus to death. Yes, there's systemic injustice. 
The problem goes deeper than many of us are, are willing to dig. The main issue is, is not merely that systemic injustice oppresses people. The main issue uh, that's not talked about hardly ever when these issues are brought up is that systemic injustice offends God. And notice the question in verse 20. Can these wicked rulers, the ones who frame injustice by statute, by laws, can they be allied to you? Can they be rightly related to you, God? The implied answer is, of course not. They can have no fellowship with God as they do evil to those created in God's image. In fact, it's because they don't have a relationship with God at all that they so devalue the people that he's created. We've said before, when that vertical relationship with God is ruined, it always results in broken horizontal relationships with people. Yes, there's tragedy in every form of injustice, in every system of injustice. But the worst part is that it actually hurts the oppressor more than the oppressed. They further cement their distance, distance from God. They further lock in their coming destruction at his hands. But for the Lord's people, even in the midst of enduring it, we can have hope and take comfort that God will be our refuge amid trials and with the sure hope that he will not allow any of the suffering that we face to go unpunished. And look at verse 23. The psalmist prays for God to repay his enemies. Uh, the, the psalmist's prayer that God will repay his enemies is answered. We read, he will bring back on them their iniquity. He will wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord God will wipe them out. The Lord will. You see those promises in there? The Lord will repay them. The Lord will wipe them out. The Lord will. So we can wait with hope, comforted by God's word and presence, and trusting in God's promise. He will avenge his people. So we need not worry about avenging ourselves. Yes, fight injustices as you see them. Fight against anxiety and unbelief in the face of them. Fight fear and anxiety as you experience them. But know that ultimately the battle belongs to God and he will prevail on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are not free agents in this world. Lord, that it's not just random suffering or hardships that we, that we face, but that they pass through the hands of a sovereign, loving God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a mind to trust you in it. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would turn the hearts of our persecutors, the ones who do evil and wickedness in the world that are wrapped up in systems and individual animus, Lord, we pray that you would turn their hearts before they meet you as their judge. Lord, you tell us, not to avenge ourselves, but to pray for our enemies. And so, Lord, we pray that you would turn hearts. We pray that you would do that here this morning, Lord. Turn hearts who might be evil and against you, Lord. And, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen many others, that we might trust you more, that we might believe in you, that we might joyfully endure all things, knowing that the day is coming when you will avenge your people and repay all your enemies. 
We praise you for being our just and great God. In Christ we pray.